Welcome to Brave, Bold, Brilliant. Your host, Jeanette Linfoot, talks to incredible people about their experiences and unleashing their full potential. From the boardroom tables of big international business to the dining room tables of entrepreneurial startups, embracing opportunities, overcoming challenges, taking risks, while staying true to yourself is where the magic happens. Hi, it's Jeanette here. If you're enjoying Brave, Bold, Brilliant, I'd love it if you'd subscribe, share with your friends and leave a five-star review. Let's do it. Here's the show. So welcome to the podcast. I am Brave, Bold, Brilliant. I'm your host, Jeanette Linfoot, and I'm here today with Jamie Waller, who is an entrepreneur, author, philanthropist and uh, lots more in between I think Jamie. <laughs> Welcome. Thank you for having me. So we are here in beautiful Henley-on-Thames. Yeah. Um, a bit different from probably where life started for you so we're going to hear all about your journey in a little bit um, and also you know you've done a huge amount in business um, but also more than that with the book unsexy business which is fantastic read everyone so i would really recommend that and you've got a second one lined up as well haven't you so I we do. can talk about that as well um but let's kick off with your journey okay that's all right yeah well thanks for the book plug so um <laughs> yeah well i uh, th- this bit's always quite embarrassing because most entrepreneurs always um talk about their sort of poor unfortunate upbringing but i guess you know i'm i'm traditional in that sense so i grew up in bethnal green in east london mm. that was before it was full of trendy bars etc <laughs> but it was a great place to grow up you know but we lived in a two-bedroom flat above a shop where actually both my mum and dad passed from that same rented flat um which we never owned and you know i had a traditional traditional upbringing for a sort of i guess disadvantage, less advantage, young child in Bethnal Green. Mum and dad both worked, tried really hard, but we had very little. Um, I was really fortunate though. My mum had found a charity when I was age five. We went over to London Fields in Hackney and there was a community display and she had seen a motorcycle display team there with children performing in it. And I just drove her mad saying, I want to do this, I want to do this. So she, my mum had no confidence whatsoever, but she went up and asked these people, what is all this about? And can my son get involved? And it was a charity for disadvantaged children just from East London. And it was based in Docklands and it was all about getting children out of the inner estates of East London Mm. and getting them away to the countryside to put on displays. Um, And I didn't know it at the time, but my father was hugely abusive towards my mum. So my mum wanted to get me out of the house as much as possible. And she just didn't have the confidence to leave him. Mm. So she, um, off her own back, went and sort of signed me up for this. I had to go off on a selection course age five, which was odd um, going away from home. But I got a position within this team. And I spent 11 years in that charity from age five to 16. So every single weekend, every school holiday, I was away from home. Um, And it was brilliant because I was with 40 other kids and we were putting on motorcycle displays. You know, we were riding motorcycles, jumping them through fire, over cars, over buses, doing all sorts of stuff (laughs) from a very young age. So it gave me a good appetite for risk, which is good for business. But also it got me away from a a lot of the bad part of East London. wasn't really there to witness so that Mm. was brilliant but you know I had a traditional schooling career I I wasn't very good I am dyslexic you know growing up in the 1990s I left secondary school in 1996 age 16 you were just classified as being thick right you you weren't there was no such thing as a dyslexic test Um, so I was considered to be disruptive annoying um, and I sat I went and sat my first GCSE and before the GCSE started I was disqualified for writing on the desk and when you when in 1996 everybody used to tag their desk the exam little wooden table um, and it was just because the teacher hated me and I walked out of the school that day and I never went back I never sat any other exams because I absolutely hated the school I hated everything it stood for I hate the way they treated me um, so I went home and, you know, my mum and I were best friends from uh, from the moment I was a child right through until she passed. So I was always very confident in being honest with my mum. And I went home and I told her and I said, I'm not going back. And obviously she was really upset, but her response was, then you must get a job. 
and you know I was just just turned 16 um, in the February and this would have been whenever you sit your exams sort of early on in the summer um, and I went walking the streets to, to find a job and I went and got a job on a building site for a while did a few odd things and then I set up a window cleaning round so my first ever business was cleaning people's windows and as you can see from this place, we have a lot of windows. <laughs> You're never out of work. <laughs> which drives my wife mad because I clean them. Um, and she's like, why are you cleaning windows? And I'm like, well, because I used to be a window cleaner and nobody else is going to do it up to the standard I expect it to be done. <laughs> so I do clean all of these windows. But that was my first business. I run a window cleaning business. I employed a couple of people. It was brilliant in the summer horrendous in the winter um, and then I, I was cleaning the windows of a shop in Woolwich in southeast London and they had a massive disused piece of land next to them um, and I did a deal with him to rent that piece of land and I wanted to set up a car sales business so I sold the window cleaning round in the back of a classified ads paper of the South London Press for £6,000 took that money to the local auction house and bought some cars and started selling cars. So my second business, sort of age 17, maybe 18, um, was selling cars. And, and that went very well until London got a mayor and the mayor had a great idea to put single and double red lines everywhere. And my, what I called a showroom, my piece of grass had double red lines painted outside it so nobody could stop. Ah. <laughs> Not great when, um, you know, my main yeah. business was dads buying their daughters their first time cars, you know, mm. £1,000 for a car because they've just passed their test. And it just went from making money to making nothing overnight. And it was a real, real moment for me because you could either sort of cry and, and blame society or you could do something about it. Mm. And for me, I was going home overnight and watching the news and you would hear loads of market traders and shopkeepers going... This is outrageous. I'm not going to pay. I'm going to tell all my customers to park there regardless. And then you'd have this smartly chap, smartly dressed chap from TFL up here going, well, if they do that, we'll send in the bailiffs. We'll send in the debt collectors. And I was sat there going, ah, what's this bailiff debt collecting thing? And obviously this was before you could just Google everything. Mm. Um, you had to go and do some legwork. And I... I went and spoke to a couple of companies that did it and I got a job as a self-employed debt collector. And the debt collection thing was odd because at the time debt collection really was a rough, rough business. Mm. And I thought, look, I grew up in Bethnal Green. I'm a confident young chap. I can do this. And I got a job as a bailiff um, and it was within three or four months and I realized that the people that owed the money weren't the issue. It was the people that were collecting it. It was the organizations involved in it. They were run by some really scary people. And I was there thinking, this is outrageous. How does government authorize these people to go out to people's home and collect money on their behalf? It's disgusting. Mm. And again, I had that pivot moment. Then what do you do? Do you walk away from it on the base of your morals, of which I had lots of growing up in Bethnal Green about people being mistreated, etc.? Or do you try and do something about it? So I set up my set up my own enforcement company, my own bailiff firm. And that was really tough because you're not allowed to sell it. You know, all the stories you've heard about ice cream vans and stuff like that. Think of that, but with bailiffs, you know, mm. this, isn't, this isn't someone who pours an ice cream every day. These are people that collect debt for a living. So it was horrendous. Mm. So I set up my birth, first bailiff firm and I had nothing but, but grief from, from the people that were then my competitors. You know, I had threats of um, my office being petrol bombed. I had threats of violence every day. I, uh, I arrived home late one evening outside my flat in East London where I was attacked and stabbed, which is believed to have been one of my competitors uh, in, my, in my shoulder, which is there to remind me every day of that. But it just made me more and more determined mm -hmm. to shake up this sector and do something different about it. So I set up, which is now the second largest enforcement company in the UK, and we changed the sector. We drove all of the legislative changes. We drove all of the improvements in behavior, uh, in, in training, and that company went on and I sold it in 2015, I think 2016, um, for, a, for tens of millions of pounds. It's an impressive journey. <laughs> It's a busy one. <laughs> that was the quick cancer through, but we're going to get into some detail. So, you know, when you were when you were starting out and your mum said very wisely, actually, OK, fine, don't do school. However, you've got to do something. Get a job. Yeah. Um, and, and obviously you, you, you went very 
clearly into the entrepreneurial route rather than actually going and getting a job per se you actually set up businesses for being very young where did that come from do you think that whole entrepreneurial approach well look i mean the the charity that i was part of as a child involved us getting on a coach every Saturday morning and driving up and down the country to put on displays. Mm. I was very aware that there was a life outside Bethnal Green, which a lot of my friends just weren't. Yeah. Because they would go to school in Bethnal Green and they'd come home of a weekend and spend their time in Bethnal Green. But we would drive up and down Kensington High Street. We would drive to Manchester, to Birmingham, to Nottingham. We would sit on the motorway for five hours in traffic and I would see people had different types of cars. I would see that some houses weren't above a shop. Some houses were bigger than others. And it just, from a very young age, it inspired me that all of this stuff was achievable Mm. depending on what route you took. You had to go out and get it, I I think, was the basic terms. Mm. So it was no surprise to me that there was a life outside that there was, you know, I don't like to use the term better because Bethnal Green was brilliant. Um, But there was a life outside that was different and it was one that I wanted. So for me, it was not a question of, um, am I going to stay in Bethnal Green and get a job as a milkman? Or am I going to go and live in the leafy suburbs of Hampstead? Mm. I knew I was going to go and live in the leafy suburb of Hampstead. And one of the things my dad used to do um, is every now and again of a weekend, he would say, we're gonna go for a drive. And we would drive to Hampstead in Northwest London. And we would drive around and my mum and dad would talk about look at that house look at this house and I used to sit in the back of the car and I used to hate it I used to want to smash the window because I was like why are you doing this to yourselves why don't you just go and work harder and buy that house Mm. it never made any sense to me so um, as soon as I could I bought my first I know my first flat but I bought my first flat outside of East London. I moved to various locations in East London that were slightly better than Bethnal Green, but my first flat outside of East London was in Hampstead. Mm. And I made the decision there and then and bought a two bedroom garden flat in Hampstead um, because, you know, that stuff annoyed me. So I just, I just knew that you had to, you needed some energy, you needed to get off your ass if you wanted to, to do well in life. And I was determined to do that. Mm. And you know the choice, I mean, obviously you started with the window cleaning and then you had the car, the car sales business and then you got into the enforcement sector, which, you know, pretty gritty. <laughs> I'm sure yeah. there's lots of other words we could use yeah. to describe it. I'm sure you, you could even more so. But were your mum and dad supportive of you getting into that sector or were they sort of parents that are thinking, oh God, we just want to keep you safe and this, is all, this all could be a little bit dangerous, especially when you talked about like, the stabbing and things that were going on. They must have been quite concerned or were they just sort of like, no, we've got to let Jamie fly. He, no, 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 we're deeply concerned. Yeah, so my, my mother was definitely more concerned for my safety. Like, you know, why on earth are you doing this? Mm. Should you be doing it? My dad was more concerned about what the friends and the neighbours might think, you know. You're going to work as a bailiff. Like, you're not allowed to be a bailiff or a police officer if you're from Bethnal Green. You're just not allowed. Because you're on the other side. Yeah, you are completely discontinued from that community, if that's Mm. the case. And my mum, bless her, put up with a lot of, you know, comments from her friends, you know. Jamie does what? One of the things I did um, to launch my business too is I signed a TV contract with the BBC. So I did six years of primetime TV and we were getting 11, 12 million viewers a week. So it wasn't like they could hide what I was doing. I was literally, after EastEnders on a Thursday night, that my face was all over the TV. I was, you know, in the Sunday papers, etc. So my parents had to live with that and it wasn't easy for them in Bethnal Green. Mm. So there was mixed emotions there, but I was always confident that I was doing it for the right reasons. I was always confident, and it's a motto that lives with me to today, which is everybody deserves to be paid what they are owed, of course, but not at any cost. And it's Mm. that, but not at any cost, that has driven me from age 18 to now age 43, Mm. to always try and do the right thing. Because debt, somebody in debt does not mean that they're a scumbag. A lot of people can get in debt very easy, especially in a society where you can pull out of your car, uh, your house, drive across a set of traffic lights, be photographed for jumping a red light, accidentally get stuck in a yellow box and get fined for being stuck in the yellow box. You could go out and in an hour run up 500 pounds worth of debt. 
Yeah. It's really not difficult. Mm. But yeah, it, 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 you know, they found it tough. Not as tough as I did. You know, I was on the receiving end. Of it all, <laughs> and I was having to dress it up and say, look, it's not as bad as you think. Yeah. And, you know, the night I was stabbed, um, you know, I was, I was petrified. You know, I, I, I'm, I'm certain I knew who, who, who did it. Um, but I couldn't go to the police because I was frightened of the the reaction that that would drive mm. so i was sat on uh, i was sat in my flat with um with gaffer tape taping up my entire shoulder as tight as i could and drinking a bottle of whiskey to send me to sleep and crying yeah, because i felt very alone you know and didn't know what to do and i was very very scared but that moment drove me to you know ultimately I knew the only way I could affect that person was to take contracts away from them and improve my business. So it was a big driver mm. and ultimately it's led to me having a much better life. Yeah. And ultimately I would say improving the lives of many other people that have been on the receiving end of this behavior because those characters don't really exist in that sector anymore. Mm. Let's talk about some core values then, because you know you, you, the way you talk about about the, the business and and the way to the way to deal with clients and to deal with you know there's there's good way and there's a bad way, right, or, or not a less good way, shall we say? So so the actual. Uh, I suppose the ethos and the way that you do things. Um, it, it strikes me as very value driven. You know that you do things in a in a certain in a, with high integrity and, and quite a moral moral approach to things. Would would that be fair? Yeah, I think you know, <clears throat> I would say I attempt to. We all make mistakes, right? <laughs> sure. I would hate to, I would hate to sit here and say, of course, you know, um, I, I try my best. Um, there are things that I have done in life that I'm not proud of. There are things I've done in life that I wouldn't do again. Um, but yes, I try to make sure that, you know, from my business and my personal life that I try and do the right thing mm, because mm. that just makes sense. Yeah. And the image of the industry. So in terms of disrupting it and, and doing it in a better way, you know, the reputation, the word bailiff has got quite negative connotations around it, hasn't it? And I, I know from reading the book, Unsexy Business, um, you know, you talk about about actually changing the terminology of the sector or certainly influencing that to be in the enforcement industry, not the bailiff industry. How yeah. important was that? It was hugely important. So, you know, most people love bumping into an entrepreneur in a bar or a round table event or something like that. Nobody loves bumping into a bailiff entrepreneur. You know, <laughs> if you ever want to end a conversation quickly, you tell somebody you're a bailiff. Um, so that was a big driver for me. But also, you know, the we improved loads of stuff in that industry. You know, some people said we were hugely innovators and maybe we were, but some of our innovation was brilliant. Some of our innovation was tiny. Our first innovation was to take people out of hoodies like I'm wearing today mm. and trainers and baseball caps and put them into a uniform. Our second innovation was to take them out of going to visit people as a pair and make them go individually. Our third innovation was introduce the first accredited training scheme through City and Guilds. Our fourth was to introduce body-worn video and voice recording technology. We then went into data analytics and behavioral science. And, you know, we, we progressed with mm. time. Um, but yes, the, the simple one of me going to government and saying, you must change the terminology from bailiff to enforcement agent because bailiff makes somebody want to react in a negative way. Mm. And an enforcement agent may not because yeah. it will be a clean slate. And that should in tandem go with a new set of regulations that improve the way these people behave and their accountability. Mm. Was It took me 12 years to get that through yeah. government. Um, and we, when we got it, you know, I was, I was hugely, that was the moment that I put the business up for sale. I thought I've really achieved something now that mm. I've set out to achieve for, for, for many years. Was that, was that very much linked then that you wanted to hit that milestone before you sold the business? So, so you, cause, cause it, as, as entrepreneurs, and I've done a lot of mergers and acquisitions over the years, even in my corporate life, but you know, when to sell, 
is is often a really agonizing kind of decision for an entrepreneur, especially yeah. when they're a fa- it's a founder-led business that they started and it's been their baby that they've grown all over the years and how do you let go and when do you let go and what's the best time to optimize your value and all of those things. Mm. Um, but did you have that very much as a clear milestone? You set it and you thought, as soon as I've achieved that, that's when I'm going to put it up for sale or was it not quite as binary as <sighs> No, I don't that? think, yeah, it certainly wasn't as binary as that. Obviously, mm. as, a, as an entrepreneur, you know, Let's not make any mistakes. I went into business. I wanted to make money, right? I didn't want to live above a two-bedroom flat in uh, above a shop in a two-bedroom flat in Bethnal Green for the rest of my life. Um, so there was a huge element of it: is when is the right time financially? Excuse me. Um, but there is also when do I feel that my purpose has been achieved? And my purpose was very much around improving the sector. Yeah. Uh, so and by chance they aligned. Mm. Um, but in, in regards to when is the right time to sell, I mean, there's never a right time to sell, I guess. But for me, it was about leaving enough on the table. I was very aware that I was young and I knew that it wasn't going to be my last business. So I had I was incentivized to ensure that I sold a business that was going to continue to be successful thereafter. I meet a lot of entrepreneurs that go, oh, yeah, and then I sold it. Oh, yeah, it's no longer here. You know, it went down the drain and they sort of celebrate it. Mm. I knew that that's not where I wanted to be. I wanted to be someone who said, who could refer to this business forever and people would know it as being a successful business because that enables me to continue to talk to investors, private equity organizations. So there was a lot of things that had to align, but it had to be right for, for everybody. And ultimately it was, you know, I had a great exit. Um, six days later, I went on to set another business up slightly outside of sector, um, which I sold a, a year later and then you know today I now sit here back in the similar space but I own the integrator so what I decided is yeah we achieved a lot at JBW in, in improving people's lives but only those that dealt with JBW okay there yeah. were certain organizations that were our competitors don't get me wrong 90% of them were now as good as JBW in the way they treated people, etc. Mm. But there was still a small percentage that weren't. And I was talking to a coach that I was working with for a while, and she said to me, Jamie, what? It doesn't sound to me that your purpose has quite been achieved yet. Mm. Maybe your purpose is deeper. Maybe it's about improving this at a wider scale, a global scale. So in 2019, I set up a new company called Just, which is an integrator. So we put ourselves between the entire enforcement marketplace and government and we say to government we will ensure that the practices that the 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 behaviors that the quality of service is all of the highest standard rather than some companies you employ do it well some companies you employ do it badly Mm. so we're now the enforcement market integrator and what we're trying to do is deliver what i delivered at jbw across the whole of united kingdom for all government and private sector debt Mm. uh here here on forward and and that's my purpose today and that's what i'm trying to achieve yeah brilliant i mean because you're right your purpose evolves over time doesn't it you know and, and sometimes it's like dropping a pebble in a pond and you know the ripple effects so when you start in that business all those years ago to what you're now doing in terms of impact is, yeah. is hugely different isn't it from it know. is and you know I was embarrassed about you know going back to that dinner party conversation you know you'd sit around a table and you know you go left to right introduce yourselves and you know get to me and I'd say Jamie Waller and three offices employ 200 people in the enforcement space, da, 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 and people go, yeah, okay, move on to the next person. They get to the next person and they go, you know, I'm Jamie Waller and I own a digital startup, employ two people, and everybody was interested. And it used to really annoy me that, and hence the title of my book, Unsexy yes. Business, that there are businesses that are brilliant. Um, and just because they're not shiny on the outside doesn't mean that they shouldn't be respected and listened to. Mm. And that probably drove me to leave my business a bit earlier than maybe I would have otherwise because I wanted to do something more more shiny. So I went off and did a tech business and I wanted to prove to myself that I wasn't a one-hit wonder either. Yeah, yeah. And then when I sold that and I was working with my coach and, and, and Carlos said to me, Jamie, your purpose is deeper than what you... I think your purpose is more than what you've achieved. Mm. And now you've got the confidence 
to stand up tall and say, yeah, this is what I do, but look at the impact I'm having. Mm. Um, so what I decided to do is, is sort of blend that with the sexiness of tech and build this integrator, which is a marketplace for enforcement. And, and it seems to have gone down well, you know, with one very large government contract, working for a lot of the utility suppliers. And again, all based on that ethos is that everybody has the right to be paid what they're owed, but just not at any cost. Yeah. And that, that stands with us. Yeah, do it in the right way. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. And and let's talk about the book because you, you touched on it then and I've mentioned it because it, it genuinely is a great read and I'm not just blowing smoke up Jamie's <laughs> bottom. Um, no, it is. It's a, fant- it's a fantastic read because you're right. There's so many incredible businesses that don't get the recognition then that they sort of fly way below the radar but are doing some amazing things, really innovative, but just yeah. not sort of the shiny, glossy, um, you know, marketing spin on them necessarily. So, so the, the book, talk about the book, um, where that started. I know you sort of rounded yep. the dinner table, as you described there. And kind of how did you approach this collection of incredible entrepreneurs in these unsexy businesses that are doing amazing things? Because it's such a great, great book. Oh, thank you. So, yeah, I mean, the book, look, I wanted to, I wanted to tell my story because it was, it was, story worthy you know I've been stabbed been held hostage at gunpoint from Bethnal Green worked my way up in a very um, difficult business so I did want to tell that story but I didn't want to be one of these entrepreneurs who sells their business writes a book about themselves that nobody wants to read Mm. Um, and then I had this bugbear of mine that people were not interested in people's businesses actually it was that when I came up with the idea is I, I was a judge on, a, on an award, a business award, a national business award in London. And I was sat there and we were discussing the, the finalists. And there was this young chap from Plymouth, I think, or Portsmouth, um, who owned a business. It was a fire alarm safety company. Um, and it was turning over about four and a half million pounds and doing about 1.8 million pounds in profit. And I was going, clearly, this chap, he was like 22 or 24, mm-hmm. so I was like, this chap's going to be brilliant. Yeah. He must win. And everybody around the table was going, but how about this new, and I won't mention even what type of product it is, because I mm. think people will guess it, um, but, but how about this new little product, you know, that's, they've managed to get it into Waitrose, and, uh, and I was like... The reality of business is just gone. It's all about B2C, right? It's all mm. about if you if you can be aware of it because it's on the shelf somewhere, that's a real business over what I would classify as, as an equal business in, it, mm. in its term. So I came away from there going, I want to be able to tell these stories. I want to tell, I want to tell that chap's story about how brilliant he is, how he came up with his idea mm. to service fire alarms versus develop another fruit juice or something like that and I've got nothing against developing another fruit juice I just think they get lots of airtime without me having to write a book about <laughs> yeah, that yeah. so that's where I got the idea and um, I was really fortunate I'm really well connected amongst Lon- London in specific entrepreneurs so most of the people featured in the book are, are friends of mine you know Mike Clare set up Dreams the bed superstore um, you know Mike tells a story of starting with one shop called the sofa bed warehouse um, which he thought was a brilliant idea and he realised well people only buy one sofa bed but yet they buy four or five beds for their house so maybe I should be called the bed warehouse and and that's how that came alive or Lara Morgan who um, you know the the small toiletries that you used to get before Covid um, (laughs) in every hotel came up with the idea and why would you go to a hotel and you're all sharing this same bottle it felt disgusting and she Mm. came up with this idea of packaged stuff and and she sold that business for tens of of millions of pounds or harry clark you know the chap who set ringo parking up which everybody will use today Mm. um you know harry's idea of that was he got a parking ticket and on the back of it told him he had to go to the town hall to pay it and to get to the town hall to pay it meant he got another parking ticket because there was nowhere to park at the town hall <laughs> to go and pay it. Yeah. So, and these businesses are brilliant businesses, right? Yeah. And there's loads of them still today that should be recognised mm. and, and, and celebrated. So I, I, I wanted to tell my story too, and I thought, what well, better way of doing it than getting 12 people? I don't know why 12, not 10 or 14, but it felt right. And we tell their stories in a chapter 
rather than a book. And um, it sort of ticks a box for them too, because they all want to tell their story, but they're probably of the same mindset that they don't want to write a whole book about themselves that someone might not want to read. Mm. So it worked really well. But the real, I think the reason we get such great, great feedback on the book is that almost everybody in there is a friend, which means that they, they sat down and they were just open and honest. Yeah. And I didn't give them any editorial rights. I just said, you need to trust me, we'll talk and I'm gonna go off and write it and print it. I'm not even gonna share it with you because I knew as soon as you share anything with an entrepreneur, they're gonna have their red <laughs> pen all over it and it would never have been published. So we did it on the basis of trust and that really worked. And you know, and I did, you know, in a few of the stories, I, I, I wrote things that I didn't feel comfortable writing, but I, f I always looked at it from the reader's point of view. I always looked at it upon, if I'm expecting someone to spend 12 pound, 13 pound on this book, I need to give them the truth Mm. I can't filter the truth, uh, and that's what I did, and I think that's the reason it gets a lot of good, a lot of good feedback. Yeah, and it, and it's just very it, it's short, snappy, so it's a, yeah. it's a really easy read. You know, you quit, you quit one chapter while you were commuting back in the day, or whatever it might be, and 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 I love at the end of each chapter you have Jamie's lessons. So sort of what are the key takeouts? And there's some common themes actually, aren't there, across the businesses? Yeah. You know, around tenacity, overcoming failure, taking risk. You know, you name it. There's a, there's sort of those common threads even though every individual story and every individual business is different yeah. I think anyone reading that that's thinking about is the entrepreneurial life for me there's a lot of inspiration in there yeah. you know you don't always have to have the you know a, a light bulb idea necessarily to do have a good business no and, and, I, and it's, it's an interesting point you point out we wanted to be able to inspire anybody to be able to set up a business so my, my thought process was that we could all pick up a book about the founders of Google or LinkedIn or um, Facebook, mm. but most of us will put it down and leave it as something I read, not being inspired because we won't believe that it's achievable, with, yeah. it's not within reach. So what I was quite keen to do is get a diverse mix of businesses from businesses that were turning over one million pounds to Rami Ranger's business who was turning over 350 million pounds when mm. I interviewed him. So that it gave people an idea that actually I could give this a go. I could implement some of the things I'm reading here and just give it a go. Mm. And that was something that I hope, and you know, I've heard, I, I went to something recently and uh, a woman came up to me and said, I've read your book. Um, she said, in fact, I've read it three times. And somebody else said to me that they've still got it and they've got all of their notes over it and they carry it around with them. And for somebody, because I, you know, I thought writing a book was going to be easy and it wasn't, it was horrendous. Um, you know, I would sometimes go to bed at two, wake up at five and start on it again. Mm. And that was frequent, it wasn't one night. Um, but it's so nice to hear. Yeah, absolutely. So nice to hear. Yeah. And it's a great book. Um, you know, it's had great reviews. People seem to love it. And pe more importantly, people are getting something from it, right? Yeah, yeah. And that was important to me. Yeah, definitely. And actually, to write a book, you know, with dyslexia as yeah. well, you know, I mean, that, that's, that's not an easy, easy feat, is it? No. Um, to be honest, I've always, you know, I've worked in business for all of my adult life. And I've always been quite good at reviewing bids and you know, getting things into plain English and stuff like that. So my, my dyslexia is spelling um, more than anything else. But so it wasn't, it wasn't terrible from that point of view. Um, but, you know, I had a lot of help. I got a lot of help. My wife, you know, was brilliant. She, she could read it and go, this makes no sense, Jamie. What is this you're trying to say here and stuff like that. A friend of mine, Michael Heppel, um, helped me really on how do we get this you know, I wanted to get it to an average region age of 11 because mm. I thought that would make it easy for people to pick up and read. And Michael helped me with that. So it was great. Uh, it was great. It was a collective effort, definitely mm. yeah. led by my drive to, to try and get it perfect. Was there any part of you that in the back of your mind, you're thinking, I also, because of your school situation where, you know, you, 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 you didn't get on so well at school for, for a whole variety of reasons, as you said, but was there an element of... I'll show him. I'm going to be a published author. Or, or am I putting words in your mouth? Um, yeah, no, I don't know if there was. But, I mean, don't get me wrong, that has happened in my life. So yeah. in 2010, I signed up for a very small business course at Cranfield University called the Business Growth Programme. Um, and, that, you know, that sounds like an easy decision. It wasn't for me. I spent two years pouring over it. And 
when I went to Cranfield University, I was petrified. I was physically nervous in the car park because the, the society of education had done that to me. I just what the institution mm. of education had done that to me. Um, and I went to Cranfield. I spent three months there on a business course, and I loved it. So much so that I then went to Stanford University and did a course there. I then went to Berkeley in, in California and did a course there. And then I came back and this was my, um, you can edit this out, but fuck <laughs> you to the, the education sector yeah. moment is I went off to the London Business School and said, I want to do a, an executive MBA, but I don't have a GCSE. And obviously an MBA, you need to be a postgrad. Yeah. Um, so you should have gone, not only done a GCSE, but done A-levels and, and gone to university and got yourself a degree. Mm. Um, and, and I explained to them why, and they invited me in to do a presentation. And I went down, um, the, I went to Kensington High Street into the stationery store there. And I thought everyone will go in with a PowerPoint presentation. And I bought these big A3 art boards and I spent all weekend on the floor of my flat in London um, with my now wife putting together this presentation. And I drove off to LBS and I presented to a room on why they should allow the first person in LBS's history without a GCSE to do an executive MBA. And they accepted me uh, a few months later on, on, on the course for that. Amazing. So um, yeah, that was my moment on, on, yeah. My education was really bad, you know, t teachers were not, my children go to a school local to here now. And, um, and I was there yesterday because it was the end of term and they do these end of term awards. Um, and it's just amazing the work these teachers do, the, the, what they get out of mm. the children, the way they develop them. The, the, the whole education process and the value of it, I get. It just didn't exist where I was growing up, you know? Mm. And it was because we were in this big state system where if you, if you weren't at the same level as others, and there's no doubt that I couldn't be at the same level as others, um, you had to be pushed out or pushed to a side so that they could concentrate on those that had the ambition or, or ability to, to, to achieve. Mm. And that's deeply unfair. Oh God, absolutely. And and like, you know, if you don't fit into a specific box, then yeah. then the system almost computer says, No, you know, I don't know what to do with you. Yeah. So, so as you say, I mean, I, I personally believe that education they need to, to include much more about financial awareness, even just managing a, a household budget and simple things like that. You know, we're not yeah. taught that as the kids aren't taught that at school and I, I think there's a big job still to be done on actually providing relevant education for yeah. children, not just the classics of, you know, maths, algebra, <laughs> geography, history, and yeah. all of that. I agree yeah. with you, but you know, there are a lot of basic things too in state schools that need fixing alongside that, you know. Mm. I remember one of my teachers saying to me, you know, he really aggressively pushed me up against the, the lockers and said, if you don't concentrate, all you will ever do is drive a van for a living. And I remember thinking, how dare you? Like, what's wrong with that? Some people are selling drugs for a living illegally on the street. Some people are burgling people for a living. Mm. How dare you put down what, in my eyes, would be a perfectly feasible career for some people? Yeah, and just an honest day's work. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so that needs fixing because mm. that is terrible. Now, don't get me wrong. Kids at a certain age can be a real bloody pain, right? And it can't be an easy life for some mm. teachers in some schools. Sure. But you know, we do need to, we do need to get our get our heads around that. We do need to try and treat people more equally and more fairly. And I'm I'm quite you know I'm very interested in diversity and inclusion and how to you know not just around race and sex, but about education levels, around accents. The reason I sound like the way I do today yet I'm from Bethnal Green is because I was, un I was not accepted into the business community age 18 or 19 with my Cockney accent. Mm. So I spent thousands of hours driving around the streets practicing how to speak differently. And now it's funny because people go to me speak Cockney and I'm like, I can't. It's like asking me to speak Indian. It would be rude for me to even attempt it. Yeah. It's gone. And to be honest with you, I'm really gutted that it's gone. Because now where I am in life, I would love to have a connection back to my origins. Yeah. And I'm disappointed. And I'm disappointed that people drove me to make that change. But I did it. And now I have to live with it. Um, but, you know, the, the level of prejudice in our country 
is beyond colour. Absolutely, it's, it's education. Social mobility. Yeah, it's 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 your accent, and it's all of these different things. And I spend a lot of time and do a lot of talks on this stuff these days. And I'm really keen to keep pushing that agenda. Mm. That you know, we need to just be more kind to people, right? You need to see people as people, yeah. rather than colour or their size or, or or their accent or where they're from. And there's never a truer moment right now of a a war going on. You know that. This is the reality, right? Oh, 100% right. And, and, and like you say, I mean, I, I spend a lot of time and effort on diversity and inclusion as well, you know, in particular gender, as you would expect. You know, yeah. I, very often I was the only woman in the boardroom and some of the stuff that used to go on was just outrageous, you know. And uh, thankfully, we've, we've moved a lot forward, still more to go. But... But when it comes to social mobility, we're not even really scratching the surface. It's no. not really even on the agenda. And I mean, I remember, you know, because I've got still quite a strong Mancunian accent, despite being in London for 27 years. But, you know, sometimes my mum would say, oh, you've put your telephone voice on. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, I think we all do it. But, you know, it's about fitting in, isn't it? And feeling that you're an imposter and therefore, you you know, you're not going to be taken seriously. And no. that's such a crying shame to feel you can't be your true self or where you're, you know, feel you're from in order to be taken um, seriously. I mean, it's shocking, right? I, 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 was, I was somewhere recently um, and the person was with their young daughter who was about seven or eight and they said, oh, you know, jokingly to a group of us, oh, you know, she was saying, I, I was going to pop into Tesco with her yesterday because she wanted something. She said, I won't go to Tesco. I will only go to Waitrose. And I just stood there looking at him thinking, how sad for you and how unfortunate this for this young eight-year-old girl who's going to grow up thinking that that's normal behaviour. Mm. Mm. Um, it's really scary, actually, because, and, you know, we know that there's a class system and, and stuff like that that exists in, certainly in the UK, more than most countries in the world. But... Um, you know, we, we do, we've all got a responsibility, right? Absolutely. And it's not easy. You asked when we set off on this um, interview earlier on, on this podcast of, you know, are you driven by solid values? And I, and I honestly said, you know, I try to be, but we all make mistakes. Mm. Um, so, you know, you can't always be. That's just a reality. But should you set out to be, of course. Yeah. Uh, and that's really key for me. I've got two young daughters, um, five and six now, and, you know, I don't want them to be, um, I, I hope that me nor any of their clo people close to them have a conversation with them about how they can only shop in Waitrose. That's disgusting. That's mm. not where I want to be. Mm. I want my children to have friends from all backgrounds, reflective of real society and, and do that. And I do a lot of charity work that I involve my children in every day to ensure that they get exposure. Mm, yeah, let's talk about that because philanthropy is a, is a big thing, isn't it, for you to give back because you know, you've done exceptionally well, all off your own back and credit to you, you know, but I think when you get to a certain point in your life and you appreciate what you have got, it, it's natural to want to give back and you do you do a lot of more philanthropic kind of work so let's talk about that a little bit yeah I do so I mean again it's a little easy for me because you know being a child of a charity I really have been on the receiving end of the benefits yeah um, so I know that it works uh, I was sat at a dinner just last last Thursday where somebody you know it's always it's always somebody like this but it's somebody who graduated from cambridge come from a long line of family money had set up their own business done very well and said that we should stop giving money to charity but give more to government to help people um because charities don't work and i was sat at the table and said well hang on a second i think i'm the only one here um that has gone through the entire process and mm. can absolutely tell you that they do work so for me, it was natural. Whenever I, when I was less busy and had some money, I wanted to go back and help the charity that had helped me. Just by chance, that charity was close to going bankrupt, so I went and helped from a financial perspective, but also from a business perspective to get them back on their feet. Mm. And I'm still the main sponsor of that charity, which is the IMPS Motorcycle Display Team today. And when I was around 11, the IMPS again in a financial difficulty moment was sponsored by the prince's trust yeah so when i had made a significant amount of money and i was thinking about what i might do from a philanthropy point of view 
that was a natural fit too because it was well if it benefited me then it must benefit others so I started mm. to investigate that um, so I'm the main sponsor for, for, for the IMPS motorcycle display team. I'm now chairman of the Princess Trust Enterprise Network, which is a bunch of successful entrepreneurs all set out about how they can help young, less advantaged people start, build and manage their own business. Yeah. And that was an idea that I took to the Princess Trust, very much like the idea I took to um, LBS to have a, a non-GCSE person take an MBA and said to the Princess Trust, look, it's easy for you to get celebrities and very highbrow business people onto a stage, but they might not motivate people the same way yeah. as getting someone who's lived a similar life that they are living mm. today. Mm. And I had this idea that we would set up the enterprise network and, and my, my mission and my vision and what I'm doing is not about, so the enterprise network's mission is to help young people start, build and grow their own business. My mission and vision as chairman of it is to build an infrastructure for the Princess Trust that will be here for the next 100 plus years. Yeah. So the people that I've appointed beneath me are really much working on fundamentally delivering great things for young, less advantaged people right up and down the UK, taking them out of housing estates and into the boardroom. Mm. And that's working brilliantly. Uh, but my vision is, is very big. I want the Enterprise Network to be part of the Princess Trust for when I pass, when my children's pass, and hopefully when my grandchildren pass. And we're doing great. We launched in um, April 2021. Um, we've raised around half a million pounds. We have 13 members, and we continue to grow month in, month out. And so that's a that's taken up a lot of my time, 50% of my time at the moment, yeah. but I love it. And I'm, you know, I'm really focused on doing it and doing it well. Yeah, you're really passionate about it, and you can see that. And if anyone wants to get involved in that, what's the best way for, to, for them to, to kind of get, get stuck in, either if they want to support, you know, with knowledge, experience, finance, or if you're a young person that wants to start a business, what, how do they connect with so you? So the Princess Trust website is a brilliant resource. You know, you can go to that and you can use the search bar. You'll find it quite easy, the Enterprise yeah. Network. Um, but failing that, just reach out direct to me. I've got young people that are going through it, that just reach out to me on LinkedIn and go, you know, I'm interested and I will always connect you to the right person. So people go to me, how do you have enough time? I'm like, well, I spend 50% of my time on this, but I also spend 18 hours a day working. Yeah. So <laughs> it's a full-time job for me, right, yeah. in, in, my, in my vast work, work day. So um, what I would say is anybody that's interested either from helping to inspire and deliver for these young people or young people that want the help of the Prentice Trust is reach out however reach out to anybody that's associated with the princess trust and you will connect, get connected to the right person because mm. the princess trust is a well-oiled organization it really does work yeah so take the action don't just think take, about it or be scared to think oh it's not for me maybe it's not for me just actually jump in and yeah, get involved. yeah. even if it's dropping me a message you know through one of the social platforms and yeah. saying look I'm, I'm interested i will make sure that that gets to the right person and and people get help and it's brilliant i mean we're We've got people now, excuse me, my cough. <coughs> We've got people that, um, I've got a founding member. So a founding member is a very successful entrepreneur that owns a region of the Enterprise Network. I've got a founding member in, in the Enterprise Network now that when he was sat in prison for smuggling drugs out of the UK, he heard a talk from the Prince's Trust came out of prison, set up a tech company in the financial services world, sold that business uh, about five years ago, and is now a donor to the Princess Trust and helping me deliver this to other people around the country. Um, you know, the people that are involved in this are truly people that have been there and done it themselves. Mm. And that's what's so fantastic. And I take my children along. We go and do talks to groups of of, of young adults um, in certain parts of the more deprived parts of London, etc. And I take my six and five year old and I get them up on a stage with me and we, we really drive, we drive from the front of what we're trying to achieve here. Mm. And we're trying to take people on that journey. Um, and even some of the young people that have been helped by the trust sit in our monthly board meetings to make sure that we stay true to the cause and that we're not just delivering things we think these less advantaged people want. Yeah, and yeah. And that's really key. And role models, you know, I mean, if, if, if it's often just sort of saying, listen, if 
I can do this, so can you. Uh, you know, there's someone that looks a bit like me, sounds a bit like me, maybe comes from, you know, the, the area of the UK that I grew up. If they can do it, I can. It's, it's really that encouragement, isn't it? Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I, you know, I can walk on a stage with 20, I can walk into a room with 20 young people that look and sound very different to me today. Mm. But I can lift up my top and show them the stab wound on my shoulder and tell them my story yeah. and they instantly connect. Yeah. Because they, again, like the book set out to achieve, they believe that it's achievable. Yeah. They believe that it's within reach and it's not just, you know, another Facebook story. Um, because there's, a, there's only a one in a trillion Facebooks, unfortunately. Mm. Um, but it doesn't mean that someone couldn't have a bloody good life setting up their own business, you know, with the flexibility of working from home and, and childcare with that and all of the benefits that come from that self-employed um, basis of running your own business, being your own boss or, or anything or mm. anything similar. Yeah. And you mentioned the stabbing again. So that's a couple of times you mentioned that. So it's obviously a pretty big, big event in, in your, your sort of, you know, business life. Was that the low point for you? Or when you look back over, you know, all those years in business, what would you say was the, 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 the lowest point that you were at? Yeah, that was definitely... Um, I had a few low points, but um, yeah, I mean, that was definitely up there with the lowest of points, you know. And yeah, it still gets to me today, you know, it, it's not unusual. My five-year-old is very affectionate and, um, and sometimes she will just come up and stroke my shoulder mm. and then kiss it and be like, poor daddy, that horrible man. Mm. Um, and, you know, it, it's been many years since that happened, but it, it still gives you the same feelings Takes when that happens, yeah. Um, but I've had other moments, you know, I've had... Business can be tough, eh? Um, <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> and, and money brings out the worst in a lot of people. So, you know, people can do some very unsavoury, unusual things that you wouldn't normally expect people to do. Um, but as I mentioned earlier, my mum and I were best friends right up until she passed. And while she was dying with cancer... I was her carer, so I moved in with her um, and, and, and looked after her. And during that moment, I had a couple of people close to me in business really try and, and do me over and, um, and get me out of my own business, which I owned 100% of. Um, but, you know, people do odd things. So there's many low moments, but you either roll over with them and give up or you see them as a reason to prove people wrong and, mm. and achieve great things. I'm really fortunate in life that those moments have normally, I think almost, if not every time, have driven me to prove somebody wrong or um, make them go, ah, look, you know, this, when I walked into LBS, um, when I walk on a stage uh, of a Princess Trust event and talk to people, I guess I've never thought about it other than when you asked it, but those mm. moments are little moments where I'm getting something in my stomach that says, yeah, this, is, this has been great, mm. which you don't get by buying a Rolls Royce or flying private mm. or anything like that. Um, it's a very different feeling. It's a true feeling. And that for me is what success is really about. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Absolutely. And, you know, you talked a little, you touched on a little bit about betrayal and people that have let you down yeah. in, in business. And I guess we all have it to a certain extent in business, sometimes personally as well. It can happen, as we know. How did you personally deal with that? I mean, I, I've read the book, so I, I know, I, obviously, I know from what you said in the book. But when that situation happened, when you were having a really difficult time with your mum as well and all the, the grief and emotion you're going through there, and then you've got someone else over here plotting, you know, essentially to kick you out of your own business, yeah. how did you deal with that emotionally and practically then? So, I mean, it was difficult. I guess my upbringing again from Bethnal Green and stuff, you know, I come out fighting. Yeah. Um, you know, it's a trait of mine and it's a trait that I've had to control over the years because you can't go and punch somebody in the head anymore. <laughs> you've, got to you've, got to you've got to deal with it in a very different way. Mm. Um, so with that instance, you know, so, you know, people don't need to buy the, buy the book to read the stock to understand the story. This chap was trying to get an internal team to to kick me out of my business for a, a, they were going to buy it off me but they were trying to get a, an internal team that came together and said if you don't sell it to us we're all off so it'll collapse yeah. and they were talking about an 8 million pound figure and I knew the business was worth a lot more but I discovered this because 
he had said something to me on my way out of the building one day that was very out of character for him. And then I spoke to my wife about it and she said, I think you should check up on it. So I went to the IT department and said, can, we, can I look at his emails? And it was my finance director. He was, by the way, he was a good friend. He was a, him and I were competing against companies we should never have competed against. We were a brilliant team. Mm. Um, and that's why it was so odd. And then I got a download of emails uh, and I was just jumping on a flight. Um, when I got off the flight the other end, I had this file of emails and I sat up and read them throughout the night and I just was gobsmacked, you know, because there were all these emails to and from people yeah. plotting this, this takeover. So what, what did I do about it? So I sent them off to my lawyer and I highlighted everything. Catherine, who's actually a founding member of one of the regions for the Princess Trust now, she owns her own practice in London, and said to Catherine, what can I do about this? And I flew back. You know, because there's no time for a holiday when this stuff's no. happening. So you flew back and I met up with Catherine and she said, we need to come down and I'm like a ton of a bricks. Here's the draft notices, meet them. Da -da -da. And we just kicked them all out. And that was brave, right? Because <laughs> the, their bargaining power was if we all leave, your business is worth nothing yeah. or take eight million quid. And there was me going to go, I'm going to kick you all out and I'm going to start from it being worth nothing. Mm. Um, and it was a big life lesson for me, actually. People always think they're worth more than the business. Businesses survive without people yeah. um, if they are set up well in, in the first place. And I believe mine, mine was. But it was tough. It was, it was a, a couple of weeks after my mum's funeral. Um, I was at my lowest point, you know. Um, so it was really tough. Mm -hmm. But I forgive. I, I've, I've spoken to those people since. Um, you know, do, people do odd things and I'm not going to carry a grudge around with me. I think it's, you waste more energy carrying the grudge around with you than you do getting over it. So I've spoken to those people since and I'm over it. Um, but, you know, it was a nasty thing. It was mm. a really nasty thing. But I came down on them really hard. And, you know, the, the, the FD that was leading on that conversation, by the way, he had about, I think, 10 or the numbers might be wrong but the 10 to 15 percent share options in my business i kicked him out with none after that yeah. and two years or two and a half years later sold the business for 40 odd million quid yeah so so you know that was my payback to mm, him mm. um and i don't need to tell him about that i just keep he knows obviously because all the story's public yeah. but and that's what enables me to talk to him today and not hold any grudges against against him for it. You know, yeah. like I said, people do silly things for money, really silly things for money. Yeah. And and that was that was one. But hopefully, you know, I'm sure that he is aware that his life would be vastly different had he not been silly. Yeah, absolutely. Be and been a bit more supportive, right? Yeah, especially at that time. Especially at that time, yeah. My gosh, yeah. So, so this is it, because people will look at you today and they'll say, oh, God, look at Jamie with you know, all his millions and he's doing all this, you know, he's doing all this charity stuff. It's easy for him. But actually, the highs, the lows, the heartache, the graph, yeah. the... You know, all of that, people don't always see that, do they? And that's what I love about, about your journey and about the, about the book as well, because it is very much warts and all. Yep. And, you know, for every, behind every success that's seen publicly, there's gazillions of tough times, failures, having to bounce back. And equally, when a business fails, or is, I hate the word fail anyway, but when a business doesn't make it, people just see that. They don't see all the wins along the way and the lessons learned. No, and, absolutely. You know, and, yeah. and it really does. It drives me crackers, actually. <laughs> and most entrepreneurs have never paid their true worth, right? Um, um, if you calculate somebody's exit price and you divide it by the amount of hours they've worked um, and the initial money they put in or money they've loaned and paid back mm. over the time, you'll work out that they were probably, you know, uh, as good as a middle management position at HP or IBM. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But the thing is, we only ever see the big number at the end, right? And yeah. I, you know, I've had, I've had two significant company exits and, and own a bunch of companies now. Um, so you're right, people see that and, 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 you know, I get it quite a lot. People go, oh, you know, you do good or, you know, what, what right do you have to use the term philanthropist? And I'm like, well, you know, other than I've been giving money and time to charity my entire adult life and I grew up as part of one and I'm now building an infrastructure for the Prince's Trust that I hope will be here for the next 100 years and help 
hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people into business. I'm not too sure what more I can do, <laughs> yeah. you know. But the UK is, is, you know, more in the UK than many other countries in the world. People don't like to see success mm, I know. and you're not allowed to show it. Yeah. And that that's a shame. It's a deep shame because it should be celebrated, right? Yeah, I agree. And also I think when when things don't go don't go well, you know, people love the gossip and you know and, and it's I I don't like that, you know. It's almost like people are looking for you to fail whereas if you're in the states or something, you know, walk into a bar and all oh, my business I've just had to close my business. Yeah. Oh, slightly on the back. Oh, congratulations. What yeah, did yeah, you learn? Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's a totally different approach and I, I think that whole approach to sort of failure is, is it's a real mindset shift actually and we need to do more of that to help people I yeah think. we do and it and it and it starts at, it starts right with going back to our conversation about schooling right yeah it starts right at that um you know the, the the title of this podcast about being brilliant you know every day when my children leave the house for school or i drop them at school i always say to them try and be brilliant today you know yeah. just try and be brilliant and and that can mean so many different things but it's really important to get into people at all ages from all backgrounds that any not not that everything's achievable because mm. everything's not achievable there's things i still want mm. um that i might not achieve but that things are achievable and every little achievement is is weighs as much as the next yeah and i think that's that's really important too and i'm quite focused on this stuff of course i am i got a five and six year old i'm right in amongst it mm. um if you would have had you know if we if i'd have heard someone talking about this seven years ago going, oh god you know <laughs> children sort of thing but it's really important because you see them develop and you see their personalities so early on mm. on what they might become mm. and also how you can really screw them up if you don't do it right and that's really important so i'm really interested in that at the moment i spent a lot of time watching the dynamics between me my wife and my children and the school and and other people around them and how we try and just give them the best start in life you know yeah yeah and also give them the courage to to be to be what they want to be as yeah. well and have those choices isn't it no matter what they may turn yeah. out to be so yeah it's going to be interesting to see how your two two daughters um move forward with their lives it's going to be exciting yeah but um just before we we kind of come to a close because i could talk to you for hours jamie <laughs> When you, when people ask you, um, or maybe they don't ask you, but I'm sure they they will ask for your advice. What does it take to be a successful entrepreneur? What are the key things that that you think make a stand out as an entrepreneur? For me, it's about purpose, and and and, and purpose. I think you said it earlier on. Your purpose can change, and mm. actually, your purpose probably should change. Um, and so, purpose doesn't always mean something that's a too good in thing to do. You know, oh, I want to make the world more green. Mm. Um, not that that's a bad purpose to have, but you know, my initial purpose was simple: to make money. My second purpose was to become rich. Mm. I'm not frightened to say it. And without that purpose, I would never would have got off the floor when I was stabbed and gone mm. to work the following day. So your purpose will change, but you must have one. Mm. You know, and if you're simply just doing it because you think that it's cool it's probably just not going to work mm. and it's probably better things for you to do so find what that purpose is and be true to it and live by it don't be frightened to say what it is you know if it is because you grew up with nothing and you want something then just be honest about that yeah brilliant no it's so important and yeah. it's obviously driven you all these years so yeah you're a perfect example of that <laughs> fantastic so can you think of the best piece of advice you've been given over the years um Again, it will it will relate back to that purpose, which was um, my my coach at the time, Carla, just saying to me, "You need to be honest with yourself, Jamie," because I was hiding behind this. I no longer wanted to be involved in debt because of how it's perceived by people. Mm. And Carla said, presenting back to me, "But you're improving people's lives, yeah. and isn't that your purpose, Jamie?" But it's not about being involved in debt it's about improving people's lives so that are on the receiving end mm. of debt recovery practice so the best piece of advice i got was to be true to myself and stop hiding away from that which you know i'd spent my life not doing so it was quite difficult for me you know we changed my accent mm. changed many things along the route which were all a bit dishonest to myself but in the with the aim of improvement and that was a time in my life that i went okay i get it 
Yeah. I really get it. Yeah, so important. So anyone listening, great piece of advice as well from you, passing it on to the, yeah. next, the next people. And can you think of any advice that, did, that you took that didn't work out so well and you wish you hadn't taken it, or that was so bad that you, you just ignored it and you were really glad that you didn't, you didn't go forward with it? Well, I think... Um yeah, I think it was uh, to sort of, I don't think it was ever dressed up like this, but it was the, to retire. It was, you know, you've done enough now, mm. retire. And let me tell you, that's a miserable place to be. Um, and maybe actually one of the best pieces of advice is, uh, I've received also was another friend of mine who said, Jamie, don't ever become rich and irrelevant. Don't become someone who sells their business and then turns up at every networking event, boring people on how great you once were, because no one will care. Um, and retirement is a horrible place at the wrong age, at the wrong time. Um, and it leaves you purposeless. And that is really challenging. And, you know, when you arrived earlier on, we were talking about it. It's actually going to be the title of my next book, Life After Exit, about how you prepare people to, if not not exit, mm. or when they do exit, be prepared for the changes, find another purpose, whether that be philanthropy, business, or something like that. But, mm. yeah, th those people that go around saying, well, you've made your money, why don't you leave? Why don't you give it all up now? That is terrible advice. Do not listen to that advice. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. That's my key. Yeah, yeah. There's life in the old dog yet at yeah. any age, right? <laughs> yeah. And uh, and this podcast called Brave, Bold, Brilliant. Um, so, what when you think about those words, either singularly or collectively, what does that mean to you? For me, and I, it might not be exciting, but it's just to, it's just to be your best, right? It's to try and be your best. So, as I said, when I drop off my children at school in the morning, when I have that be brilliant moment. It's not that I have a, an expectation from them to come home with a certificate for something mm. or an award. I just want them to be the best that they can be that day, whether it be by being the best friend, by being the best uh, at trying something, or being the best at sitting still. And I, I think sometimes we all set these bold goals you know, and actually, it's the sum of the parts, right? Yeah. Um, uh, there's a, a famous TED talk about making your bed every morning that we're all aware of, right? Mm. If you start by making your bed in the morning, um, my, it drives my wife mad in the morning. Sometimes I come down. My wife thinks that if I'm not about, she can quickly slip them in a jumper that's not ironed to take them to school. And I'll <laughs> catch them as they're getting in the car and I'll be like, Madeline. What have you done? Amelie's jumper's not iron. She's like, no, it is. It's just not as great. And I'm like, no, 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 stop. And I will take Amelie back. We'll, she will wait while I iron her jumper. So it's just put your best self forward mm. at all times. Mm. And you obviously can't do it at all times, but you should aim. You should try to. Yeah, brilliant. I absolutely love that. Oh, thank you so much, Jamie. It's been an absolute honour, honestly, a real privilege. Thank you for uh, chatting. And we'll have to have a follow-up, in particular, when the, uh, after the next book is the out. The next book, yeah. What's the time frame for that? Well, so I just trademarked it this morning. Um, so it's a brand new idea. Um, and I'm going to just try and find some time to, to sit and write it. So Excellent. hopefully, I mean, the last one, I got it done and out within a year so wow, that's, that's, that's pretty fast let's go yeah. talk to a publisher so watch this space everyone <laughs> where can people find you as well just the last point uh, mainly so i'm 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 not the biggest social media user because i find that it's a bit of a time thief um <laughs> so um i am on all of the platforms but i check them very infrequently other than linkedin which does connect to me immediately so linkedin is the best place to find me or you can simply google me in my email address and telephone numbers all over the internet so Perfect. pick yeah. up the phone I'm, I'm one of those people that love the phone people don't use the phone anymore uh, <laughs> so just pick up the phone or drop me an email perfect oh thank you again it's been great to brilliant. see you thank you cheers I really hope you've enjoyed Brave Bold Brilliant don't forget to subscribe and share with all your friends and if you've enjoyed listening I'd love it if you'd leave me a five star review <laughs> <laughs>